Luke, Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 5 to 20. This morning we turn from the Psalms to the Gospel narratives of the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. And today I want to consider the interesting fact, a fact we take far too much for granted and think about too little, that angels encounter us everywhere in the Christmas history. We're beginning to read chapter 1 of the Gospel of Luke at verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. There were many priests, but there was but one temple. So the priests served on Aroda. They were divided into 24 divisions, of which that of Abijah was the eighth, as you can read in 1 Chronicles 24.10. Only four of the 24 divisions returned from exile in Babylon, but those four divisions were subdivided again to make up the 24 original divisions and were given the old names. Each division was on duty at the temple twice a year for a week at a time. 24 times 2 is 48, the number of months in a lunar year. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. There were so many priests that even when a priest's division was on duty at the temple, there were not, there were not enough sacred duties to go around. The offering of incense, which required the priest to enter the holy place, the outermost of the two rooms of the temple building proper, was a privilege. And so assignments were, as it were, drawn from a hat. Some priests at this time never enjoyed the privilege, and no one was allowed to do it more than once in his life. So this was a momentous day in Zechariah's life. The incense represented the prayers of the people, and once it had been burned, the priest would come out to bless them. And there appeared to him, that is to Zechariah, an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. Now the obvious question raised by the angel's response is, what prayer? Verse 7 makes it seem very likely that Zechariah and Elizabeth had stopped praying for a child years before this. Did Zechariah pray for the redemption of Israel as a priest might very well think it his duty to do so on such an occasion when he was offering incense in the holy place? If so, the granting of their prayer for a child would be significant because it was a sign that the Redeemer of Israel was about to appear. John appropriately means the Lord is gracious. The name is longer in Greek than it is 
in English. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Referring to Malachi's prophecy of the return of Elijah or a figure uh, Elijah-like before the coming of the day of the Lord, the angel prophesies that John will be the cause of many Israelites returning to God. Now there can be no doubt that in the judgment of the New Testament, Israel had fallen away from the Lord in largest part and needed to be called back. All four Gospels bear repeated witness to the spiritual and theological declension of Judaism at the time first John and then the Lord Jesus himself made their appearance. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Zechariah was caught off guard. He wondered how, given their age, what the angel had told him about Elizabeth having a child could possibly be true. This is a human touch. So, as so often in the Bible, when the supernatural is encountered, this is not a myth, some fable or legend. Such stories are rarely lifelike about the difficulty people have in accepting the eruption of the supernatural into their lives. And so Zechariah asked for a sign. He needed assurance like Gideon or Hezekiah before him. You have only to compare this account to those of the apocryphal gospels written several hundred years later to see how very differently such stories are written when they are being made up. This was C.S. Lewis's point, if you remember, a man who probably knew more about mythical writing in world history than any person alive in his time. Whatever the gospels were, he wrote, they were not the sort of tales one finds in the ancient myths and legends. They are a very different thing, report-like in their nature, rooted in daily life, with all manner of unaffected and artless touches of realism. They haven't the typical features of invention. They have all the features, the telltale signs of history. This is a fact of extraordinary importance, as we will see. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. The sense of Gabriel's reply is debated, but there is certainly a rebuke in the words. For goodness sake, what is more difficult for you? To believe that an angel is standing in front of you? Or to believe that the words that he has spoken to you are true? Zechariah's doubt, for example, compares unfavorably with Mary's later humble acceptance of the angel's remarkable announcement to her. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Clearly, the sign itself is a form of rebuke. Zechariah didn't believe what Gabriel said to him, so he won't be able to say anything about it to others. Apparently, he was also made deaf 
because we read later in this same chapter that after this people communicated with Zechariah by making signs which would not have been necessary if he were able still to hear. He didn't believe what he had heard from Gabriel so he won't be able to hear either. If a man doesn't believe what God says to him he might as well be deaf and dumb. No doubt the Lord had another purpose in this. It served to conceal the revelation until the proper time. Father in heaven, we have this remarkable piece of history before us this morning. We take it all for granted because we have read the story so many times. But this is something to ponder, to consider, to think through. Help us to do so wisely and well. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. The casual reader of the Bible may very well suppose that angels are found everywhere in the biblical narrative. They assume perhaps that if you find them anywhere, you would find them everywhere. But in fact, you do not. Angels appear rarely in the Bible. Indeed, according to Holy Scripture, only a very few people in the history of mankind have ever seen an angel, and still fewer of them, ten or less, perhaps, have actually seen an angel in person, not in a vision or a dream. Only very rarely has the veil been lifted that separates this world from the unseen world that is around us all the time. It is, after all, a fact obvious in this narrative, but often overlooked, that angels as spirits are ordinarily invisible to human beings. It is not as if Gabriel, in his shining glory, with his six pair of wings, or three pair of wings, his six wings, had walked through the crowded temple courts, up the steps, and into the holy place of the temple. The Bible makes that clear. He took visible form in the holy place for the first time. There are both angels and evil spirits abroad in the world, but we never see them. They must take some step, whatever step that may be, to become visible to a human being. For all the occasions in the Bible when angels are mentioned in one way or another, and for all the information we are given about them, we know precious little. They are creatures as we are, servants of the Lord as we are. They execute his will to a degree and with a power beyond what is true of even the most righteous of men and women, but they too love God and they too serve him. Theologians sometimes debate whether angels have been made in the image and likeness of God as human beings have. I think the answer is likely yes. But it is obvious that like us, angels have distinct personal existence. They possess self-consciousness, knowledge, will, affections or emotions, and the ability to communicate. In the Bible... Angels are persons. They are not ideas. They're not powers. Still less are they avatars of God. But they are clearly differentiated from human beings as spirits only. They may assume 
bodily form for the purpose of communicating with human beings, but they are themselves spirits without bodies. I find that interesting, not least because one day you and I will be spirits without bodies, at least temporarily. We will ourselves experience what it is like to be a person, self-conscious, knowing, feeling, willing creatures, but at least for a time, creatures without bodies. In heaven, even with our bodies, once raised in perfection on the day of resurrection, we will not be married either. And Jesus said that in that respect, we will be like the angels. So there is more similarity between human life and angelic life than we might at first imagine or realize. In fact, and I think this is interesting and important, the only reason people stumble over the existence of angels is because they don't take as seriously as they should, they take far, much, far too much for granted, the extraordinary existence of human beings. Angels and human beings are far more alike than they are different. What is more, no one thinks God is an old man with a beard except Gary Larson. If you believe in God at all, the existence of angels, living, personal spirits, should pose no problem whatsoever to your intellect. I am, of course, leaving out of consideration the fallen angels, the rebel angels, the spirits who are now at work in the sons of disobedience. The angels also had a fall, as did human beings. But only some of them fell, and those who fell are never recovered to righteousness. There is no redemption for angels, which must make the human story perpetually fascinating to them. They have powers that we do not have, but God in love has given his Son for us, but not for them. The angels who did not fall are righteous and holy by nature, not by redemption, not by the new birth. They are once referred to in the Bible as elect angels, but never as redeemed angels. We know that angels are at work in our world, but precisely how they work and what they do, this we do not know. We know that they are sent out to serve those who are being saved, as we read at the end of Hebrews chapter 1, but precisely how they serve us, we are never told. How much happens in this world because of the work of angels, we cannot say. Perhaps it is far more than we think. This world is, after all, alive with spiritual beings, both good and bad. But you may be surprised to learn that angels appear only rarely, even in the miracle-filled life and ministry of the Lord Jesus himself. They appear, of course, here at the beginning of the Incarnation, at the announcement of the birth of the Lord's forerunner, John the Baptist. An angel will appear to Mary and Joseph on separate occasions to prepare them for the roles they would play in the birth of God incarnate. It was Gabriel once again who spoke to Mary, and may well have, it may well have been Gabriel who spoke to Joseph, though that is not said. Then, of course, as we sing in many of our Christmas hymns, first one angel, and then many brought the news of the birth of Jesus to the shepherds near Bethlehem. 
Soon after his birth, an angel warned Joseph to flee to Egypt to escape Herod's paranoid rage. And when the danger was past, it was again an angel who advised Joseph that it was time to return home. Many years later, they will appear at the outset of the Lord's public ministry and immediately at the end of the 40 days of his temptation in the wilderness. And then nothing. And then they will appear at the very end of the Lord's ministry in the Garden of Gethsemane to soothe him after the great battle of his final temptation. They will announce his resurrection to those who visit the tomb that first Sunday morning, and they will be present at the ascension to uh, explain the significance of that event to the Lord's disciples gathered there on the Mount of Olives. But otherwise, we hear nothing of any angel during the 30 years and more of the Lord's life and the upwards of three years of the Lord's public ministry. And only a few, very few, other than Jesus himself, ever saw these angels. When Zechariah went into the holy place that day, no angel had appeared to a human being for centuries. remarkable in a way when you think about it that angels might appear and have appeared but then almost never do appear. But what's really remarkable in respect to this particular history is the concentration of angelic appearances anywhere else in history, far more than anywhere else in history or anywhere else in the history of the Lord Jesus and his own life. Angels crowd the Christmas story in a way and to a degree we encounter nowhere else. And that's a fact worth our pondering. I say when Zechariah went into the holy place that day, all unawares of what was to come, no angel had appeared to anybody for centuries on end. Zechariah had never seen an angel. He'd never met anyone who had seen an angel. The only thing he knew about angels was what he had heard when the word of God was read in the synagogue service week after week. And the word of God was a smaller book in his day than it is in ours. He had to do without the further information about angels we find in the last 27 books of the Bible, what we call the New Testament. He had absolutely no expectation of ever seeing an angel. We don't know precisely what Zechariah saw, what Gabriel looked like, but Zechariah was terrified. You would be too. Gabriel apparently made no effort to hide his angelic being, as angels have sometimes done and were so mistaken for human beings. Zechariah knew, he knew immediately that Gabriel was an angel. His appearance was in some way not of this world. I don't think there could be any doubt as to why angels proliferate at this moment in human history. Something was up. Something of immense importance, historic importance, earth-shaking importance was about to occur. Something was about to happen that would define the meaning of human history and human life. This is what G.K. Chesterton meant when he described the incarnation, God coming into the world as a man, as that incredible interruption a blow that was to break the very backbone of history. There's a reason why time ever since has been calculated, divided into years before Christ and in the year of our Lord. 
If you believe as we do in the history of the Incarnation, if you believe that the living God who created the heavens and the earth came into the world as an infant human being to first to live a perfect human life and then to endure the penalty our sins deserve, if you believe that nothing less than this was required to deliver human beings from sin and death and restore them to God, if you believe that the destiny of human, every human being is and must be thus determined by whether or not he or she welcomes the Savior or rejects him, if you believe that Jesus Christ is thus the way, the truth, and the life, and the only way to God the Father, I say, if you believe those things, you will not stumble over an angel or two appearing in this history. For if this history proves anything, it is that God is mightily at work in this world, that supernatural powers are real, and that no one can understand reality who, who confines himself or herself to what he can see and hear and touch. If any event in the history of mankind should have been announced by angels, this is that event. If any event in history deserved to be set apart from all other events by the presence of angels, this is that event. If the incarnation is history in the ordinary sense of the term, an event that occurred in space and time, if there are such beings as angels, why would they not announce the greatest thing that ever happened? And if God the Son were entering the world as a human baby and doing so largely incognito, why should we be surprised that at least a few human beings should have been apprised in an unforgettable way of the astonishing events that were about to occur? True enough, as part of our Savior's humiliation and suffering for sin, the divine nature had to be hidden, concealed, remain unrecognized, and it largely was. But it doesn't surprise us that God did not leave the birth of his son without a witness, without breathtaking demonstrations of the fact that this was the birth of one whose goings forth were from everlasting, from of old, that this was the birth of the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. If angels were ever to appear, this was the time. The Son of God came into the world as a baby, to be sure, helpless and utterly dependent, but he also came into the world as the prince of a great kingdom, the king of a great host, an army whose servants are flames of fire. So don't miss the obvious here. All you need to know is that an angel named Gabriel appeared to a Jewish priest named Zechariah, that single fact splits the world open before you and reveals to you the nature of life. So much in this world we do not ordinarily see. But if your vision never transcends this physical world, if you remain unaware or largely indifferent to the existence of angels and demons, you will not, you cannot possibly rightly understand this world or your place in this world except this one fact that an angel appeared to Zechariah and delivered a message from God and your entire understanding of reality must perforce be transformed. We are all of us in the modern West now very used to the atomization of human society. 
pundits and politicians and academics are forever dividing the human race into every manner of group. People are defined by their genders, by their race, by their ethnicity, by their income, by their level of education, by their political and social viewpoints, and on and on. There may be some value to all of this, helping us to be more understanding and sympathetic toward people whose circumstances are different than our own. But we must never lose sight of the fact that there are but two groups of people in the final analysis. Just two, and always only two, so far as the ultimate destiny of human beings is concerned. There are those who believe the word of God and live according to it, and there are those who do not. There are those who believe that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, and those who either do not believe or who don't care. Just as there are holy angels and evil spirits. So get the point. We Christians believe in an entirely different universe than unbelievers do. There's no point in evading this fact or minimizing it. It cannot be denied. It makes all the difference, finally, whether this world is God's world, the theater of his glory inhabited not only by creatures that we can see, but by angels and demons who in ways we cannot calculate are also determining the course of events in the world. Admit this, and everything must change, including the meaning of your life and the shape of your future. To the unbeliever, the one who does not love, the one who does not believe in God, does not believe that God came into the world as a human baby, life is defined by the absence of God, not by his presence. And what a world of difference that must make. He or she may not be conscious of the fact that his or her entire life is shaped by, defined by the absence of of God, of life, of a world without God, without supernatural realities. But their lives are defined by that, and the proof is in the pudding. There's nothing in their lives, his life, hers life, her life, that reflects, that bears witness to the existence of another world, of other creatures in this world whom we cannot see, of a looming future in which human beings live in either weal or in woe. Admit but one angel. Admit that once that angel appeared to a person and spoke to him a message from God. Even in the Bible, this is a very, very rare occurrence. It almost never happens. Even very important biblical characters, think of David or John the Baptist, never saw never spoke to, never were spoken to by an angel. But admit that such an encounter occurred at least once, and the entire world takes on, must take on a different appearance. Reality must be redefined, the meaning of life, the possibilities of the future. So now, think with me again of the delicacy, the reticence, the artless, honest way in which such an episode as Gabriel's appearance to Zechariah is reported in Holy Scripture. You may have to take my word for it if you've not read these works yourselves. 
the mythical and legendary accounts of supernatural beings, whether from the ancient world mythology or modern, the modern world science fiction, the fact is you'll find nothing remotely like in all of that literature, you will find nothing remotely like what we read here in Luke chapter 1. Nothing at all. The telltale marks of invention are everywhere in that literature. Nowhere to be found here. There's first of all the setting. An ordinary couple with an ordinary human problem, now up in years, priest who otherwise was living an ordinary life, about to be given a jolt for which he was completely unprepared. We know who the man was. We know what his priestly division was. We know approximately when this happened. We know where it happened. We know why he was there at that particular moment and what he was doing. The episode is rooted in ordinary history. Nothing legendary about this at all. Then there's also the unexpected reticence. None of the many questions that intrigue us about angels are answered at all. We are told what Gabriel looked like, what it was that Zechariah saw. The first thing we would expect an inventor to tell us. Nothing is said about the sound of Gabriel's voice. We're left in the dark about most things. Zechariah is no hero. He doesn't rise to the occasion. He's confused, perplexed, and afraid. He puts his foot in his mouth in a perfectly extraordinary way and is punished for what seems, frankly to us, a rather minor faux pas. None of this is anything like the stories that people have invented about human beings encountering supernatural beings. Read those stories and see for yourself. Read them all. And the message... It isn't what anybody would expect either. Not a prophecy of some terrific demonstration of supernatural power, of the victory of some great army in a desperate battle. No, what we have here is the promise of the spiritual transformation of human hearts from unrighteousness to righteousness, from rebellion to repentance, from estrangement to reconciliation. This is not what avatars are about or Marvel comic book figures, and it was not what the mythical heroes of the ancient world cared about either. The good news here is that God was about to turn the hearts of his children toward himself in living faith and holy love. People want a superhero today, as they did in their day, but they're not interested in their hearts being made good. They want to win. They want to get rich. They want to succeed. They want to enjoy good health. They want to be happy. They don't want to worry about what anyone else thinks, including God. They're looking for a Spider-Man or a Green Hornet or a Batman, not John the Baptist, for goodness sake. A prophet preaching repentance. How droll. How irrelevant. A Savior come to suffer and die for our sins. Surely there has to be better news than that. No angel appeared to anybody as the Roman Empire crumbled into ruins. No angel greeted Columbus when he first set foot in the New World. No angel appeared to the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia. No angel appeared to General Eisenhower the night before D-Day. No angel greeted the men who landed on the moon 
No angel gave tips to the Wright brothers or the inventors of the computer chip. But angels did appear when it came time for the redemption of the world to be accomplished and when it came time for the great sacrifice for sin to be offered, when it was time for death to be conquered and for new and eternal life to be proclaimed throughout the world in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That we find angels here and almost never anywhere else. That we find more angels here than we find anywhere else in recorded history is a lesson in what matters for time and for eternity. It teaches us how differently we who believe in Jesus must think about everything. The world in which we live, the meaning of our lives, and supremely the place that Jesus Christ, the incarnate God, must have in our hearts. That someday you may be able to talk with this same Gabriel, that he is as real as that, as ordinary as that defines the gulf, the chasm that separates us from those who do not believe that Christ came into the world to save sinners. Amen.